It's Wednesday, October 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Calling into question how long people are immune after being infected with COVID-19, we have a 25-year-old man that is the first American confirmed to have been infected twice with coronavirus. We know this is a reinfection because the virus was genetically different the second time around, and his symptoms were also worse. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for what we know about this reinfection. Next, some more information on the men accused of trying to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. They were also planning on taking out another political leader, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. The organizers of these plans wanted to make them big, saying they needed 200 men to storm Capitol buildings. The FBI has said that neither governor was ever at risk. Pilar Melendez, reporter at The Daily Beast, joins us for these spoiled plots. Finally, as we move through the pandemic and everything has become more politicized, we are seeing trust in government science erode. President Trump has hailed some therapeutic treatments as cures, which they are not, and some government agencies like the FDA have stumbled too. But trust in the science needs to be maintained, especially when it comes to taking a vaccine once it is approved. Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Most people probably who get infected and recover have some level of protection for some period of time. But it's just a reminder that we shouldn't be cavalier. There are people who are going to get reinfected and some people will get reinfected and be sicker the second time around. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. Calling into question how long people are protected after they've been infected with coronavirus that causes COVID-19, we're hearing about the first person in the U.S. who has been reinfected with COVID-19. It's a 25-year-old man from Nevada. Karen, tell us about what we know about this reinfection case. Right. And I should clarify first, he's the first one who's been studied. There's been a case report about him. I have gotten at least 20 emails overnight of people saying that they have been reinfected or they know people who have been. So it's not a brand new phenomenon, but this is the first time somebody has detailed it. And basically, he was a seemingly perfectly healthy 25-year-old guy. He is an essential worker. I couldn't get any more detail than that. But he caught the infection on the job. There was an outbreak where he worked. And that was back in March. He went home. He was sick for like a month. And then he had tested positive early on. Then he tested negative. He was still in isolation. He was still at home. He hadn't tested negative twice. About a month after, five weeks after he tested negative the first time, he was feeling ill again. A family member, also an essential worker, had been exposed at work. The man still hadn't left his house in all of that time, but he was exposed again at home and infected again. Now, the weird thing about this is that the second time around, the infection actually seemed to be worse. We have heard about reinfections before, and I think the reports were that the second time of infection wasn't as bad as the first time. But in this case, it was worse. You know, he had sore throat, cough, headache, nausea. He had diarrhea. The second time around, his oxygen levels were low. So they had to hospitalize him and give him oxygen. Right. He had pneumonia the second time. So he was quite sick. And that's bad news for all of us, actually, because the hope had been that after you got it once, your body was sensitized to it. If you got it again, it would be a minor infection, be a a common cold. In fact, several of the common cold viruses that we get every winter, our coronaviruses are similar to this one. And the thought was 
that those were originally dangerous, but our bodies had gotten used to them. The fact that this guy and a few others have had it worse the second time, it could be just some fluke about their immune system, or it could be that something different is happening this time. We just don't know yet. And one of the reasons why we know this is a reinfection is because the genetic material of the virus was different. It was two different strains they were saying. Right. What they found, they were able to genetically sequence both of the viruses that he had, and they were not similar enough. So it couldn't have just been one virus that evolved in his body and changed a little bit over those two months. He was definitely reinfected. Now, this also raises question about immunity, long-term immunity, as you were kind of mentioning right there. This also has implications for vaccines, but some of the public health experts say that the immunity or the benefits from a vaccine are a little different from getting the virus naturally and getting over it. The hope is that a vaccine will be more protective, actually, than a natural infection because it's stronger, because it's directed at the immune system. Hopefully, it will be longer lasting and more powerful. We don't know that yet, though. Tell me a little bit about what we know about some of the other reinfection cases. From my understanding, I've seen a bunch in other countries, Belgium, Netherlands, Hong Kong, Ecuador. What do we know about those? The one I know the most about is the one in Hong Kong, where it was somebody who'd gotten ill early in the pandemic, got better was healthy enough to be traveling, I think, to Europe, came back to Hong Kong and was tested just because everybody entering the country is tested. He didn't know he was infected again, but he tested positive. So in that case, the second infection was much milder. He had no idea he was sick or was exposed. So again, that gave people hope that a second infection would be milder. Karen, you've been following you know, a lot of COVID-19 news. We're also hearing about two clinical trials that have been paused. The first one was Johnson and Johnson and their vaccine candidate. But we're also hearing that Eli Lilly, who had one of those monoclonal antibody treatments similar to the one that the president took. I think the one the president took was from Regeneron. But Eli Lilly and, and Johnson and Johnson both paused their clinical trials because participants had gotten sick. What do we know about those? We know very few details. They're not releasing details about what happened to the people, but we do know that they were serious enough to pause the trials. And companies do this, actually, they have an independent data safety monitoring board. And when there are concerns raised about safety in a trial, the data safety monitoring board can say, hey, let's put this on hold for a little while. And that's what they've done in both of these cases last night and today. We don't know how long they will last. It's possible that the people who got them had received a placebo and not the active vaccine. And once that's figured out, then probably the hold would be lifted very quickly. But if it's potentially connected to the vaccine, uh, it could be a, a longer hold. There was also a hold put on the AstraZeneca vaccine candidate. I think that one's still pending right now. So it could have the potential to be on hold for some time, for some weeks at least. That one's been on hold since September 8th, I believe. And that hold was lifted in Britain where the patient who'd gotten sick, she is a UK citizen, and they lifted the hold, but the FDA here in the US has kept the hold in place so for the last month on the AstraZeneca trial here. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's very clear from the affidavits that it wasn't simply to kidnap. It was to put me on a trial of some sort and then possibly execute me. That's the kind of thing that you would expect to hear from a group like ISIS. Joining us now is Pilar Melendez, reporter at The Daily Beast. Thanks for joining us, Pilar. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We're learning a little bit more about the men that were accused of conspiring to overthrow the government. They wanted to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. They wanted to put her on trial for treason. They were also talking about taking out another political leader. This was Governor 
Ralph Northam from Virginia. We're learning this from an FBI agent briefing us more about the case. Pilar, tell us a little bit about what we know about the plot against Ralph Northam, and then we'll go back a little bit and kind of set the stage and, and uh, learn more a little bit more about what these guys were planning. So today was a federal hearing for some of the men accused of plotting with a local militia group to kidnap Whitmere before the election day. And during this hearing, one of the FBI agents involved in the month-long investigation into these men said that during one of the group meetings, a lot of them discussed a couple of Democratic lawmakers they thought were unjust and were using their control as governors beyond the realm to lock down states during the coronavirus. And in addition to mentioning Whitmere, they also mentioned Virginia Governor Ralph Northam and only in the way that, as the FBI agent said, only in the way saying that the governors of Michigan and Virginia were not using their powers correctly based on the lockdown orders, and they were extremely upset with the way that the lockdown orders were being held. So those were two possible targets that they were considering. And from the FBI's understanding, they wanted to potentially kidnap a sitting governor and then remove them from office. We don't know too many details about if there was a more developed plot for Northam, but we do know that in Whitmere's case, that they wanted to kidnap her and then put her on trial for treason. They thought that what she was doing and the steps that she took to kind of curtail the coronavirus were abusing her powers. And they felt that they had a need to overthrow the government, to storm the Capitol building in order to regain some sense of control and balance the power in Michigan. Tell us a little bit more about how the FBI got involved in all of this. From what the affidavits and what it seems the investigation is trying to allude to in court documents is that this was a very large operation. It involved four or five militia groups around Michigan or in that area, plus at least six men that were not involved with militia groups that were trying to coordinate together with them to try to overthrow the state capitol, kidnap Gretchen Whitmere, and potentially also having discussions about kidnapping the Virginia governor. That being said, while this chatter is against government institutions for militia groups is not abnormal, once it became clear to one militia member that this was going past rhetoric and delving into actual concrete plans to incite violence. This militia member turned into an informant for the FBI and started recording conversations between specifically these six group members that were not part of the militia and their plans to overthrow the government and law enforcement components. So as this investigation went on, we have recordings from these different individuals about specific plans that they were going to do, seeing iterations of plans, one iteration being that they were going to kidnap Whitmere on a boat and take her in a boat and leave her in the middle of Lake Michigan. Another iteration was one of the members would pose as a pizza delivery man and then kidnap Whitmere this way. While they initially thought that they were going to storm the Capitol building, they then decided the best way to kidnap the Michigan governor would be in her vacation home, which would be more secluded. And again, these are all very detailed. We have a lot of information in court documents and from what the FBI testified today about this very intricate, elaborate plan that also involved trainings. It also involved unsuccessful attempts to make IEDs, homemade bombs. So this informant really helped a lot and really shaped an investigation and a process of later prosecution that's going to be kind of hard to poke holes through. It's, it's right. very clear that these six men had a plan to kidnap the governor. 
What do we know about some of the individual men, at least the original six that were helping to get these plots together? My understanding is that one of them was homeless, living you know, in the basement of some business, uh, things like that. That's Adam Fox. So he's considered the ringleader of this organization. These six men that weren't part of the militia, obviously these six men were charged in tandem with state charges for seven other men that were involved with one specific militia group. But these six men are particularly interesting because they kind of try to recruit militias to help them in their plot. So Adam Fox is considered the ringleader. He was homeless at the time, living at the basement of a vacuum cleaner store that he was helping, working at. And at one point, the affidavit says that he even tried to consider ways of cleaning out the bottom of the basement that he was kind of squatting in to work out of and try to make that part of the group and the plot as well. Another individual, Barry Croft, is from Delaware, and he seems to be the only individual in this whole scheme that is not from Michigan specifically. And from what he was a long uh, truck driver, and I talked to some of his friends from high school last week, and they all described him as a very quiet guy who didn't seem particularly angry, and they all expressed shock that he was the kind of individual that would turn out to be this way. But at the same time, their shock wasn't completely out of the blue to them because he always seemed to gravitate towards people that were bigger than him, um, more of the bully types in high school. So this kind of just speaks to this mentality of there was a clear figure and then a lot of people that kind of delved into his plot. Pilar Melendez, reporter at The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. One thing with me, the nice part, I went through it, now they say I'm immune, I can feel, I feel so powerful, I'll walk into that audience, I'll walk in there, I'll kiss everyone in that audience. Joining us now is Joel Achenbach, science reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Great to be here, thank you. One of the big casualties throughout this coronavirus pandemic is the trust in government science, unfortunately. We're going through this whole thing. We're waiting for a vaccine. We're waiting for other therapeutics to come out. And the big unfortunate thing is that everything is getting so politicized right now that people don't want to believe something one way or the other. Everybody's split. They're divided. We're seeing this with a lot of different things in the country right now, this division. But when it comes to the science, things that we rely on for our safety, especially with these vaccines, You know, a lot of people are all over the place on this. So, Joel, help us walk through what's going on. Well, let's just think about when you go on an airplane back in the day when we jumped on airplanes. Okay, if you can remember that, you trust that there are experts out there who have made sure the plane is safe, that the pilot is trained, that the air traffic control is being well done, that, you know, there's a Federal Aviation Administration. And there are experts and scientists and engineers who try to make it all safe. And we just sort of assume that. Now you switch over to public health and you have this huge apparatus, this federal apparatus to try to look at and regulate things like vaccines. It's filled with career professionals who are trying to do their job and who are good at what they do by and large. Doesn't mean they never make mistakes, but people can make errors. You layer on top of that in the middle of this crisis, this pandemic, this huge historic crisis that we're going through, all the politics of an election year, of a highly polarized electorate and political system, 
And led by, frankly, President Trump in the White House, you have a lot of political interference with that process of, for example, vaccine approval, but also guidance from the CDC. There are these new antibodies, monoclonal antibodies coming out. They need to be approved. People want to know, can they trust the experts to do it right and to get it right and to be accurate and fair and honest about it? With the president catching coronavirus, we kind of followed his treatment. He did receive those monoclonal antibodies. And then after that, after he got better, he started calling them a cure, which they're not. That muddies the water there. So there's influence there from the White House. The agencies themselves, as you were mentioning a little bit, the FDA had some missteps. The CDC has had some missteps already with it. So this kind of compounds the issue. So when the president said this is a cure, it's not just a therapeutic, the company itself doesn't claim it's a cure. It is a positive development. Those antibodies need to be approved by the regulators. And that's one issue right there where you don't want pressure on the scientists from the political side of the government because people will say, how can we really trust this approval? It's the same issue with the vaccine. It's better in an ideal world if the politicians stand back and let the scientists handle it. Or in the case of a pandemic, ideally, you would want to have the best doctors, the best experts on infectious disease. Let them do the messaging because they are the experts in this. But instead, a lot of the messaging is coming from politicians, people who are not experts in the field, and that muddies the water. It muddies the public health message that we all need to be kind of following. You know, I think the the public is kind of getting this education on how all of this stuff is happening. I don't really think people cared before this time right now, but we're seeing how any little news on possible vaccine candidates, we're seeing Johnson & Johnson just posits trials AstraZeneca posits trials after people got sick. So we're following along with this and people are already wary of taking a vaccine if and when it gets approved. There's a trust but verify approach to life that is probably sane. You want to be your own best patient, figure out what exactly is this drug I'm taking? What is this thing that's being injected into my arm? Do some due diligence on it, right? But in the case of the vaccines, you know, there's been a lot of pressure to hurry up. Let's get it done. And of course, we all want a vaccine done. But one thing people may not understand is that you can't really rush a randomized trial involving a vaccine because people have to have time to live their lives and get exposed to the virus. And if they're on the placebo version of the trial, they might get sick. But if they're on the vaccine version, the actual real drug that is supposed to prevent infection, maybe they won't get sick. And you look at 30,000 people and you say, is there a pattern here where the people who got injected or swallowed it, I'm not sure how they actually take the vaccine, those people are having a lower rate of infection. That's how you know that it appears to be effective. You also have to see, well, are they showing side effects? Maybe the side effects take a couple of months to show up. So you actually cannot rush it. You have to let it sort of spool out at its normal rate, the way these trials work. Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.